Hello and welcome to Southbank Centre's book podcast with me, Ted Hodgkinson. In this podcast, we'll be bringing you the finest writers, poets and thinkers from across the globe, on stage and backstage at Europe's largest art centre. We're going to be bringing you interviews with writers and poets, backstage interviews and the occasional gem from our archive of recordings. Today's episode is all about the prestigious T.S. Eliot Prize. I'm joined here by my esteemed colleague, member of the literature team, literature programmer, Debol Eamon, who was in the thick of the action last night, who's going to be bringing us the hot takes on the poets. Here, an interview with the winner, Hannah Sullivan, who will be reading from three poems, her award-winning collection, dazzling debut, a real revelation of a reading too. We'll be bringing you some of the poets reading from their work when they were here at Southbank Centre. Now, the T.S. Eliot Prize is one of the biggest and most coveted in the literary calendar. It's been running since 1993 and has been awarded to a glittering array of poets, including Seamus Heaney, Caroline Duffy, Derek Walcott, and last year, Ocean Vuong for Night Sky with Exit Wounds. The winner receives a hefty £25,000, which is quite a sum by any standards. Debo, you've hot-footed it back from the T.S. Eliot Prize last night. What was it like? Well, yeah, the T.S. Eliot Prize last night was at the Wallace Collection, and it's a, it's a really wonderful night to see um, both the shortlisted poets, all, I guess, quite nervous, uh, wondering who's going to win, but also everyone involved in the poetry community, from other poets who've been um, shortlisted in previous years and winners, whether it's publishers and people just working in, in literature in general, having quite a celebratory night, where although only one person can win, it's just quite nice to... I guess, especially because it's in January, to sort of say we're kicking off a new year, but we're celebrating everything that happened in the previous. And it's a really nice way to start 2019. So there are a few poets staring nervously into their wine yes. um, while the speeches. And this was the moment that you picked to, to speak to them. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, I, I do feel a little bit bad about that. Um, but yeah, I, I managed to uh, to speak to a number of the shortlisted poets before the prize was given. I thought it'd be best before rather than yeah. after. Yes. Um, they were all very generous. Um, and I think the shortlist this year is so good that really all of them were just happy to be amongst other collections and poets who'd written such good work and were, I think, quite proud to be nominated. Mm. It is a particularly strong shortlist this year. It's 10 strong as ever. Can you just give us a little flavour of the kinds of collections that are in the mix here? Uh, So there's a real vary of um, collections this year. One of the things that's been talked about a lot is that um, 50% so five of the shortlisted collections are actually debut collections, which has never happened before. I think actually previously maybe only two debut poets have won. And so that is just interesting in and of itself in terms of the T.S. Eliot Prize and T.S. Eliot himself was a big champion or is a big champion for contemporary poetry and so having very established poets who've already won big prizes still producing work that is incredibly contemporary and speaking to the now and having um, poets with their debut collections. It's a really good point that debuts seem to have been flourishing this year and also that T.S. Eliot was a big champion of emerging poets um, he has sort of cast this kind of avuncular presence over the readings that happened on Sunday night. Um, we see an image of him up on a large screen in the Royal Festival Hall. Um, Sinead Morrissey, who is one of the previous winners, introduced and read a passage of his work. In terms of how this prize, I think, can 
place a debut poet on the map and places them in that extraordinary array of poets who've won it before. What can it mean to a debut poet or, or indeed a, an established poet to win this award? I think one of the great things about prizes is that it gives audiences a steer on, I guess, what to read. I think there's so much that comes out and so much that occupies our time that having a prize that highlights, you know, 10 amazing poets and collections, although there were many more from last year, um, having that steer really does help get an audience for their work and so when you're a debut poet especially and you're in that process of just building up your audience I think that can be um, yeah that can be vital uh, in, in terms of placing you within the landscape of poetry so having someone like Richard Scott, Hannah Sullivan, alongside names like Sean O'Brien and um, Terence Hayes, I think it really does situate them as not only newcomers to the poetry scene per se, but actually as amazing poets whose work, regardless of where they are in their career, should be taken seriously and read closely. That's a beautiful segue onto Hannah Sullivan, who was the winner of the T.S. Eliot Prize this year. We're going to hear some of her winning collection, Three Poems. She read this here at Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall on Sunday night. Debert, could you just give us a little, perhaps a little brief outline of the structure of this? Because it's, it's quite a large epic poem split into three, right? Yes, yeah. So as the title suggests, it is three long poems. and However, each one is written in sections. So... Um, at the readings, she read a short excerpt from each of the sections, um, which really is it's a great way to give a flavour of um, what you'd expect in her collection. And as you're about to hear, it's really disarming the shifts that and, and lateral moves she makes from something which can be quite arresting, visually very beautiful. She's one of the few poets that can also in that moment draw a laugh, I think, which is um, quite yes. surprising. And the yeah. audience really enjoyed it. Yes, very much so. Uh, so we're going to start now by hearing Hannah Sullivan read You Very Young in New York. Rosie used to say that New York was a fairground. You'll know when it's time, when the fair is over. But nothing seems to happen. You stand around on the same street corners, smoking, thin-elbowed, looking down avenues in a lime green dress with one arm raised, waiting to get older. Nothing happens. You try without success the usual prescriptions, the usual assays on innocence. I love you to the wrong person. I feel depressed, kissing a girl, a sharpener, sea urchin, juice cleansers, but the senses laxly fed are self-replenishing, fresh as the first time. So even the eventual sameness has a savor for you. Even the sting when someone flinches at I love you is not unwelcome like the ulcer on your tongue, wetted on the ridges of a tooth. And when he slams you hard against the frame, the poor ticked sallow bruise seems truer than the speed, the spasm with which you came. So, nothing happens. No matter what you try, the huge lost innocence at which you aimed recedes. Like long perspectives, like the sky square at the end of fifth, whitening at dawn, unseen as you watch the unlit cabs go by. All summer the park smelled of cloves and it was dying. Now it is Labor Day, 
and you've been sleeping through a rainstorm half aware of the sewage and frying peanut oil and the ozone rising in the morning heat and the sound of your roommate hooking the chain, flipping ice cubes into a brandy balloon, pouring juice over them, Ruby Sanguinello, till they giggle, popping their skins. The freezer throbs. He has been beating a man he met on Craigslist. He has been dreaming. Old New York, a James novel, a Greenwich Village Christmas, a certain kind of frost in the meatpacking district and the smell of the carcasses dull with the tang of freezing blood beside the skip of the Hudson wind. You have been thinking of the building opposite at night, the lights going off one by one, a diminished Mondrian, one ochre square where a woman undresses for the city, stroking her puffy thighs. You hear him talking on the phone about you, his petite innocente. All summer you have been eating peaches from the green market. Overripe in September, they need to rest in the ice box, sitting with their bruises. All summer you have been dreaming of fall and its brittle confection of branches. It's such an evocative extract. You get the sense of the passing of time, the watches of the night that... Um, the perspective has sort of lived through in New York but also there's this quiet way that she moves your perspective on it seems very diary-like and and almost like there's no structure to it but actually it's it's really tightly turned isn't it yeah I think well with the structure that uh, Hannah's put into the the, the collection um, it just wouldn't work if it wasn't as tight as it is mm-hmm. in that her her language allows you to feel like it's really quite free but that's a very difficult thing to do and some of the imagery that she uses she's talking about New York and somehow it feels very New York um, mm. she references looking at a tower block or a tenement um, as a as a Mondrian mm. however the eye that she casts over the city almost feels like copper Exactly. I was thinking of Nighthawks as well. Yeah. That kind of, that kind of lonely New York that sort of only comes out at night. That's only glimpsed in those moments. And the Mondrian, you know, you, you've been thinking about the building mm. opposite. People watching each other but not really interacting. Yeah. There's a special thing about being able to capture almost the sense of a city, of that collision of people and bodies and things, but at the same time, that loneliness. Mm. Her form and language really does capture that in that reading, and the way she the way she read it, the quite measured reading, I think also heightened that. She has a very precise sort of pointillist reading style, mm. which is very delicate, and sort of it is quite painterly. One of the striking things about this whole collection but is, is the way in which it is in some ways a memoir of her body, of the sounds and smells and sights that her body has absorbed and, and experienced. And in that first section, you get a sense of it being these things are happening to her somewhat passively. Um, but perhaps in this next section, even despite the titles, actually, this, this is something which happens very directly to her body around the birth of her son and the collision of that with the death of her father. So this is one of the most dramatic passages and it's also 
surprisingly disarmingly funny as well at a moment where you wouldn't necessarily expect humor so this section is called my body passive on the table um i just want to warn any prospective parents any pregnant listeners to the podcast that you might want to leave the room for this particular poem but it is an arresting and beautiful and disarmingly funny evocation of the moment of birth once they began i was calmer i enjoyed the gush of the knife and the sound of the scissors, the slop of my bowel being set to one side, the look on the surgeon's face, his attentiveness and shock. Can someone pass me the forceps, please? And then, almost too soon, he was looking away at the ascension of the enormous baby boy, rising over the curtain into the neon ceiling, and the glowing plinth of green, twitching, hacked about, the fish thrashing on the hook that happened to it. Well, of course, who wants to be born? And to be hauled out in a windowless room somewhere near Paddington to Radio 5 Live. (laughs) To be born purple, your hair scrambled like eggs. I have never heard a person so incredulous with rage. And then they couldn't stop the bleeding. Everything was larger than they thought, they said. The baby, the placenta, the vessels, even the womb. So I lay on the table hemorrhaging and the alarm bell rang and the consultant asked, what uterine tonics have been administered? Oxytocin, ergometrin. It sounded like a restaurant kitchen. Someone was washing up the fish knives and my husband had a face in his hands, grave despite the monkey hat, benignant, black-eyed, magnanimous. Late on summer Saturdays, this is what the verger sweeps. Ombre moons, pistachios, ash, hearts cut from upcycled maps, scalloped bits of Austin novels, hot, pushed handfuls of white petals. This is what the broom releases, acetate of camel lights, pheromones of human fear, public libraries' unwashed armpits, sweet sweat like a pound cake rising, modern roses' nothingness. This is how things mix together, matter's endgame of Fawn done, the inevitable grey-ish Purcell makes its money from. So, when something singular comes along, it is a miracle. Hail tap dancers down the tarmac, skittering in its silver shoes. The blur of oxytocin after labour is called joy, but it is only like the morphine, someone dying, dies, enjoying, and everyone else is vaguely embarrassed by. By the way, the person dying is enjoying it at last, by the giggling spew of the bowel in the bed and the slightly peremptory wave of the hand and finally the long carnival of the final breath, the body heaving what was inside into the open, the yellow urine skittling to the floor, the blood, the sangria rushing through the teeth and the maracas in the chest, the maracas, the castanets, as we sit, little wimpled Puritans with our tissues at the sickbed, willing it all to end, an iron lung clamping down on the eccentric oars of the ribs, wishing them still, 
wishing for silence, wishing this life lost, wishing for it to be odorless, man's loss of the last animal lust. Yes, let it be odorless, just as at birth the placenta is binned and the alien green cord is mangled with scissors by the husband who is holding his breath. Some of the lines in there really stay with you, don't you? Who wants to be born? You know, <laughs> I mean, there, there's, it's almost like a little aphorism that just pops out at you straight, like a sort of fragment from kind of Seneca or something. But it manages to have that kind of mythic scale to it. But mm. it's also got this comedy element, the sort of five live in Paddington Station, the element of, a, of surprise almost. How do you think Hannah Sullivan has achieved all of that? It, it sounds strange to say as um, because poets are supposed to take care of their words and, you know, we expect people to try and really get to the nub of an emotion, a feeling, a situation. However, as well as doing that, it feels like her power of observation is just so much sharper than mm. it, it can reasonably ex- be expected that's obvious obviously from this clip being that yeah she was obviously <laughs> paying sharp attention um mm. while while um having a c-section yeah. um and and I, th- I think that's i think that's an amazing thing to do not because it's the ability to delve into one's own personal archive and history and experiences and to mine that for um, for your art in a way that doesn't empty yourself but sort of um, lays bare your experiences and mm-hmm. um, the, the world around you is it's an amazing talent to be able to do that and I think that I think that enables her work to connect in a way that it might not otherwise the the line who wants to be born it feels like at any point in time when you say that it can take on different meaning like right now we can talk about you know being born into this particular world with the challenges that we're facing or just in general that you know one would presume it's quite comfy in there for a baby (laughs) um and and it's it's that ability to from observation to being very particular and specific with her words that almost creates universality. It's interesting because you're absolutely right about her powers of observation. It's an interestingly kind of distanced kind of observation of herself, you know, the slopping of the bowel, it's very vivid, you know, the, the idea that you could be that kind of nonchalant almost about your own body going through that kind of thing is quite remarkable and it shows the sort of clarity and control of her perspective. Mm. Um, and actually, she did say to me backstage, you know, she wasn't as composed at the time, but it's more <laughs> thinking back on it now. The line it reminds me of, funnily enough, is a line from T.S. Eliot, um, which has often been credited with being the line that kind of birthed contemporary or modern poetry, which was like a patient etherized on a table. Mm. You know, that line in which kind of modern poetry is said to have been, to have been birthed and actually the perspective of the romantic tradition of poetry suddenly gives way to this perspective which is kind of etherized and um, drug-induced and a little bit uh, somehow taking a step back and looking at yourself in a sort of speculative and you know somewhat sort of bemused way we recognize a distance between ourselves and our lives and I think that's one of the remarkable things this poem does is it really captures that gap between 
the observer and the person who's living. Yeah, so I, I think that's right. And I, the, I'm not sure if this is just indicative of what I've been reading lately, but um, part of me sees like a connection between some of the work by Rachel Cusk in the sense that in three poems... I feel like she's imbuing emotions into us and making us feel things without actually telling us about them. By signalling and having that distance, we're able to sort of intuit what it feels like. And we've all felt, whether it's from the first poem, things like loneliness, um, we've all felt that sort of helplessness or uh, that inability to be actively involved in something that's happening directly to us even if we haven't had a c-section ourselves it's almost by being so specific and with her powers of observation and the language that she's using we automatically just connect with it in a way that i'm not sure if she was telling us how it felt to give birth in that way it would have the same effect yeah I can have to say that as a prospective parent who's expecting a child, it's quite. This is quite an arresting passage. I have to say, the image of um, does it keep the, you awake at night? The, the, she describes the um, the slight kind of uh, befuddlement of the father's face, and I, I'm, I found that quite <laughs> sobering thought. You should um, also probably keep it away from your partner. <laughs> I hope she's not listening to this. So last night you were there at the T.S. Eliot Prize and you were being our poetry uh, reporter, uh, sleuthing around and interviewing the poets. And you managed to find a quiet corner to chat to Hannah Sullivan. Can you just set the scene for us a little bit? So Hannah kindly agreed to be interviewed. So um, we went over to a, I guess, a sort of... um, Actually, thinking back, it feels quite foreboding. It was a small room with medieval armour. A torture room. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It was just coats of armour around us. uh, That uh, would have been an interesting moment when you were like, we'll just go in here for a few minutes, just to do a quick interview. It would be really painless. And then you walk in and you just see loads of medieval weaponry. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) it was quite a foreboding, a foreboding room to to do an interview in, especially maybe twenty minutes before the winner was announced. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yes, it was very kind of a what. To agree what probably to listeners it. to the podcast don't realise is actually that we do all of our podcast recordings in rooms with medieval armour. It's kind of a thing for us. Um, so we're going to picture you in a room with Hannah Sullivan um, and several imposing suits of armour. So I'm here with um, Hannah Sullivan. I guess my first question, Hannah, was um, you gave such an amazing reading at the Southlake Centre's Royal Festival Hall last night. Uh, I just wanted to ask, what was that experience like? Um, it was very intimidating for me. <laughs> uh, I'd made the mistake maybe of going to see the readings last year for the first time, and you know I was amazed by how impressively good the other people were at reading last year, and I knew, I've seen a lot of the people you know, who were reading with me yesterday read before, I knew that they would be too, so I practised a lot at home. But I mean, there is a more serious problem if you write long poems um, you know you obviously do write them as holes and um, they take takes at least 20 minutes to perform the shortest one I think the sample after him would be like 40 minutes and so it does always feel a bit as if you're merging to dissect you know when you're sort of chopping bits out and it's quite hard to know how to do that really like how let's just read the openings of, of them each poem is, is, is significant in length, but however, as um, Ian McMillan said on stage yesterday, that uh, you managed to maintain a 
giving something life and vibrancy in a short poem is a seemingly easier job. However, your collection manages to maintain that in three long poems and that uh, quite a sense of urgency. And I was just wondering, what was it like writing the collection? And um, is there anything you'd pick out that, uh, that is the cause of um, that sort of vibrancy in the work. Oh, well, it's, it's generous of you to say that. I mean, I think that the, you know, the poems are in different sections and the sections are formally quite different from each other. So in some ways, of course, it is the case that when I'm writing them, I'm writing the separate sections, which are a bit like individual poems, just they're kind of all on one topic. So it could be like a, a very, you know, each poem could be like a scene as very short, very focused collection of poems, mm-hmm. I suppose. Um, I found that as the poems get longer, and they each was longer than the one before, um, it is more difficult to work out which order to put the sections in. And especially with the sample after rain, I had some difficulty like m- knowing where to put the lyric sections and where to sort of put the storytelling. Um, I was trying to read from a bit of a blend of both of those yesterday. Yeah, I mean, personally, I find it easier to write long poems, it seems, than short ones, just because I like the feeling of having a project where you can, you know, every day for a month or two months or something, you're, you're really working on, on that thing and you can kind of get up in the morning and, and go to it and then put it aside for a few months and then come back to it rather than having to be in this sort of really like heightened state of inspiration, which I always believe one would have to be in to write a really successful, brilliant short poem. Um, yeah. Three Poems deals with um, some quite difficult topics. However, you also manage to find, I guess, joy and humour in it. And I just wanted to ask, what was it like writing about difficult moments in in, in your life and experiences, mm. but being able to, I guess, make them both specific and universal in that way? I guess, yeah. I mean, I guess in some cases they maybe it's more universal than others. I mean, I think the description of giving birth for people and other women that have had a C-section, maybe it is quite recognisable to them, but it's far from being universal um, as an experience of giving birth, I think. Um, um, yeah, I think in in general, I mean, the question of humour, um, you know, lots of writers, Thomas Hardy is one, have said that when you, you know, life is a tragedy looked at kind of under one, you know, set of auspices, and if you switch the viewpoint, it's equally a comedy. So I think writing about those kinds of topics with something of a comic viewpoint was like the only way really to go for me which is why there's actually more sort of humor in the third poem than in the other two which is actually not very humorous um yeah i mean the you know the medical um, language was a little bit difficult for me to use in you know just to to know the words and so on but i actually had a second c-section two years after the first one after my book had been you know accepted and when i was revising it so i was able to kind of watch even more carefully when I was on the operating table the second time around to sort of see what they were doing so I could you know revise the poem I definitely learned the name of the drug agometrin the second time around not the first time around that is um, amazing dedication yeah I didn't really have much choice actually I I wasn't aiming aiming to have another c-section one of the things that's really interesting about this this collection as well is that very often, particularly in recent years, collections have come to us with a very strong theme mm. or with a kind of overarching narrative or that they've approached a very particular subject. What's quite different about Hannah Sullivan, in a sense, is that this is a very uncategorizable poem or series of poems because it really does encompass the kind of the great themes of birth and death and life. As we've talked about, you know, the passage of time, um, a memoir of one's body through time. Um, you know, these are these are universal and, and gigantic themes which have run across literature. Do you think, I mean, is there something quite hopeful in a sense about a poet just addressing those, those universal themes? Yes, to be honest. I think um, 
both in the I guess in the times that we're currently living in it's quite prescient to to make work that does address those themes because as as well as you know us talking about the world society countries becoming more fractured um, at the same time you also get the sense that we are looking for connection and that it feels like we're living in a time where we're once again wanting to tackle big things whether by choice or not Mm -hmm. Um, and it makes the collection incredibly timely Mm -hmm. for that sake It, it no longer feels like we're in a place where we can afford well not necessarily afford but it doesn't feel like we're in a place where the big things are settled Mm. anymore Um, and I think this brings that to the fore actually um, in McMillan in the Football Festival Hall last night while um, introducing um, Sean O'Brien's collection he talked about a quote from Sean O'Brien's collection that art is all we have but it might not be enough there is a connection there and a hopefulness that if it might not be enough it also means that it might be and I feel like both Sean O'Brien but and particularly Hannah Sullivan tackling those big subjects those big universal themes is the only way that it might be is finding mm. that yeah the connection between us all he is leaving us hanging slightly there isn't he <laughs> it might not be enough but yeah as you say I mean it might be and that's um I guess that's what makes some of these readings so kind of arresting and heart in your mouth because you know there is this sense I mean when you see 1500 people in the Royal Festival Hall in rapt attention listening to poetry they are there because there is this sense that it might be so last night you also pulled several of the other poets on the shortlist into your room full of suits of armour one of those poets was Richard Scott the author of Soho a tender playful and evocative account of a lost LGBT and queer London it evokes the sights sounds and smells assignations tender moments that happen in those streets he imagines defacing and graffitiing a work of poetry that he finds in a library to really in a sense to make visible the invisible experience of gay life and we're going to hear now a passage from that collection in the library where there is not one gay poem not even Cavafy eyeing his grapper sozzled lads I open again the golden treasury of verse and write cock in the margin. Ink stains my fingers. Words stretch to diagrams, birth beards and thighs, shoulders, forgies. One biro boy rubs his hard-on against the body of a sonnet. Another bears his hole beside some larkin. A blue sailor spooges over Canto 12. Then I see it, nestled like a mushroom in moss, tongue true and vaunt, a queer subtext. And my pen becomes an indigo highlighter, inking up what the editor could not, would not. The violet hour of these men, hidden deep within verse. I underline those that nature, not the printer, had pricked out. Rimming each delicate stanza in cerulean, 
illuminating the readers to come. I grew up under the shadow of Section 28, a particularly cruel piece of government legislation which ensured millions of queer people received inadequate and irrelevant sexual education, and it emptied the libraries, both public and school libraries, of queer literature. And the poem I just read, Public Library, 1998, uh, tries to address my anger and frustration at that situation. Um, but it also tries to talk about the kind of reader that you become underneath censorship, how you have to read deeper and you have to kind of drill down. So I ended up looking at Shakespeare and Gerald Manley Hopkins and even T.S. Eliot for my queer fix. Um, thank you so much for having me. I'm so overjoyed to be here. I think because I, I grew up under Section 28, the idea of standing on the stage at the Royal Festival Hall and sharing my willy poems with you feels um, really shocking, but um, to me, extraordinary. And I'm so overjoyed to be here, and I want to thank you for having me, and um, thank you for listening. Uh, my book's called Soho, and in a moment I'll read a poem about Soho, but first I want to take you to Athens, to the archaeological museum there, a place I had uh, the great fortune of spending some time uh, during residency. Um, I knew I would find it a beautiful place, um, but I didn't realise I'd find it quite such an erotic place as I found it. Um, there was just room after room of these um, beautifully ruined, archaic torsos of Apollo. Um, I was just so struck by their beauty, and whilst observing them, um, I couldn't get Rilke's poem out of my head, um, his archaic torso of Apollo with the stunning last line, you must change your life, a poem which tries to posit what it's like to be in front of a work of art so beautiful that it might teach you about yourself or shake you to your very core. So I'm here with uh, the poet Richard Scott, who wrote the brilliant collection Soho. What I wanted to ask was last night at the Royal Festival Hall, you gave a, uh, an amazing uh, explanation talking about your um, impetus for writing um, your collection Soho. And I was wondering if you could just tell us about that here. Yeah, of course. I mean, I suppose at its heart, um, Soho is a search for queer ancestry. Um, so. I'm trying to puzzle out where I came from or, or where my sexuality came from and so part of that is looking at Soho in London um, a place where so much protest and so much trauma has taken place but also so much beauty and so much desire and, and, and freedom has taken place within that postcode so that was a kind of really important psychogeographical place to look at and the book also tries to conjure um, queer ancestors like uh, Paul Verlaine and uh, Walt Whitman um, and uh, touches upon um, you know what they had to say and maybe tries to slightly update them possibly um, and I guess the book also tries to look at gay pride but also gay shame as well as an important part of the puzzle uh, it's, it's really just um, an openly queer collection that tries to celebrate uh, queer ancestry queer love and queer shame 
it's a wonderful collection. So this year, the T.S. Eliot Prize, um, of the ten poets shortlisted, five are shortlisted with their first collection, yourself included. And I was just wondering, what is it like to have your first collection shortlisted for a prize as um, significant as this? Um, it feels really surprising because uh, I, 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 in no way did I expect this. Um, uh, it feels amazing because the judges are poets and it feels really wonderful to be um, you know, read and, and nominated by other poets who I deeply respect and um, yeah, it, it, just, it just feels extraordinary. I feel very privileged to have my book spoken about in the same breath as the other books in the shortlist. Um, I've read them all, they are extraordinary and I feel very lucky and shocked. Thank you very much. So, Debo, you caught up with Richard Scott. What does this collection Soho mean to you? I thought it was an amazing collection. He's uh, cast an eye over himself and London's queer history, almost looking for himself in the history, not necessarily coming up with answers as to where his queer history lies or where it came from but finding his ancestors and finding those who had come before him and to an extent I think creating and molding his own origin story for a place to belong both in the actual landscape of London but also just amongst literature and poetry itself. I was struck by how um, peopled with ghosts this collection is. It's a, a collection in which ghosts are kind of made flesh, made bodily again. Throughout, there's this sort of playful and quite irreverent humour that runs through the book. But that humour, I think, has a charge to it because it's often asking, why have we been erased? Why have we been pushed to one side or forgotten? There's a kind of trenchant critique going on of the treatment of queer people in London, which... You know, so it's both a personal, as you say, kind of writing himself into that history, but also there's something at the level of um, indignation or there's almost a sort of rage to it at points, which is quite powerful. But Definitely. So next up, we're going to hear a poem from Zafar Keneal, who um, his collection is called Us. And as Ian McMillan said on Sunday night, this is really a collection with a question at the heart of it of whose language is it anyway. He's dealing with the, the shadow of language, the space around it, and that, that single short word, us, has such far-reaching implications. He actually used it, I think, in one of his introductory remarks and said, if I can use the word. Mm. Um, so there's this sense of trepidation of who gets to speak, of who gets to use language, which feels both, again, like deeply personal. This is a This is a book that is riven with his own personal experience but it also has that um that larger question of what who how do i exist in the society that doesn't fully recognize me and how does that play out in the broader sort of in the way i use language in my life we're going to hear now a poem from zaffer um, which is spark hill fight 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 that become the chant before we'd started and started was the word. They, he's going to start on you after school over there in Spark Hill Park by the slope. They talked it up so much it happened. They gave me the word and they gave it to him. Jason Walsh, he's going to start on you. What made them do it? We'd both come first or second in school races. Same height, curly hair, mid-brown skin, friends. Let's see them fight. 
We both went quiet as gravity after morning break and all afternoon and turned up as the other or the future seemed to need on the hill after the last bell. Starting was hard. The first punch was a shove, like shoves were our slow way of talking. Shoving arms became thrown arms. Thrown arms became wrestling arms. And there was love in the grip on the fat lip of the slope. No one else there, not the arguing parents, not the news, not the crowd. Only ashamed attempts at anger or worlds turned upside down, which was us, with a crowd shouting us to tumble as we fought, like in the films. We did, and when we did, the ground felt harder than any fist on my mouth, as clouds whose names I'd yet to learn intermingled with grass, liquidly, like a head in a font, like his head was once, only the liquid was light, the mute grey clouds, or the crowd's word as we turned. Fight. I tasted turf and saw sky. Tongue-tied light came up from the ground's mouth, the way I had shaped songs that morning's assembly. It's all false, no energy in it, but where's it from? The Big Bang or before? Whatever it is, I'm not feeling it and don't want to go back up and start again. Though that's what I'm hearing we should do. There, at the foot of the hill, I push him weakly away, a shove to say, I don't mean it, leave it. I grip the bag I dropped at the start, a bag with a changed gravity, even the heavy logo, its big letters, H-E-A-D, and head home, head out of the park, down the very long Stratford Road. I didn't have the fight in me, or I didn't think I had, for a very long time, till this afternoon's grey passed the green curtain, and that afternoon's grey rubbed two flints behind my eyes, two flint clouds that ring a bell, dull and bright, and I sit down quite some way from St John's Primary School, Spark Hill Park, and that slope where time felt dense, the opposite of light, and I look past my knuckles at it, it, the black up-tilted keyboard, and on that backlit slope, these central blocks, F, G, H, and I've started to type, fight, 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 fight. So you didn't manage to coax Zaffer into your room for the Varma. Obviously, he's a very, um, uh, he was wise to it, clearly. But what's your impression of that collection? There's something incredibly beautiful about the personal nature and also the the gentleness of um, Zaffer's poetry. But that beauty, it doesn't hide. But I think unless you look closely, on first reading, you often don't see just how incisive his work is. But once you've heard him read or once you've given a second look at the poem, you realise that question that Ian McMillan mentioned on stage um, that Zaffir is tackling, yeah, the issues of language and identity and who does it belong to. And to be honest, it, it resonated with me because it reminded me of Achebe to an extent and the, um, the conversations that happened about why he wrote in English rather than in Igbo. 
Mm. Um, and I think that is something that still continues. It's not just about our place in a society, which is definitely part of it, but it's also how do you take a language to describe yourself that feels like it may not have been created for you to do that or have been often used in ways to describe you that you wouldn't agree to or assent to or be happy about but to take that same language and to reform it to fit your own particular identity and experiences and for that to be accepted i think his i think us is a beautiful collection because he somehow manages to do that and to make english feel fresh Well, thank you so much, Deborah, for all your insights and for catching up with those poets, for being our undercover poet expert um, on the night itself. So we're going to play you out now with Hannah Sullivan reading her final poem um, from her reading here at Southbank Centre's Royal Festival Hall on Sunday night, The Sandpit After Rain. Forget the transplant your father waited for, the middle of the night phone call that never came. Forget the parched brain fizzing with morphine, the body turning away in the bed, bored. Forget the negligence of nurses. Start with a daughter looking for her father, waking in shuttered rooms in vandalized suites. Start with your father listening for his mother, waking in the action orphanage in wet sheets. Start with a woman watching a man catching his daughter. End with a photo. End as a woman, older than either, feeling her own child sag in her arms, seeing it all now for the first time after the ending. The sideboard with a touched-up teak veneer, your mother's watchful shrug of hair, and your own mouth slewed with laughter, feet tilted like a landing goose falling and your father's slender hands stretched out in the wind, henna-stained, praying. Northolt, the old front room, the photo with its reddish colour cast, the faded figure in the catacomb, scouring the ceiling. Watch Contrejour, a shadow in the shade of the capish shell lamp, a mother and the child you were. You have been among the living twice and loved both times. You have fallen in the lurid air.